At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 557th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who calls bees, butterflies, and more into her landscape. We're talking with returning guest Kim Ironman about Pollinator Victory Gardens. Kim is an environmental horticulturist specializing in ecological landscapes and native plants. She is the founder of Echo Beneficial LLC in New York, teaches at the New York Botanical Garden, Brooklyn Botanic Garden, the Native Plant Center in New York, Rutgers Home Gardener's School, and several other institutions. She is an active speaker nationwide and also provides horticultural consulting to homeowners and commercial clients. In addition to being a certified horticulturist through the American Society for Horticultural Science, Kim is an accredited organic land care professional, a steering committee member of the Native Plant Center, and a member of the Ecological Landscape Alliance and Garden Communicators International. Kim is the author of the new book, The Pollinator Victory Garden, When the War on Pollinator Decline with Ecological Gardening. Kim, we got to meet you in one of our very early podcasts, number 77, back in the spring of 2016. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock pollinators? Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. You bet. So I shared a bit about you. Can you get us up to date on what you've been doing since then? Sure. So obviously the book is like the biggest news that I have. Yay. I've been talking about pollinators, teaching about pollinators for years, and now the darn thing's in print. So I'm really excited <laughs> about that. Nice. <laughs> and working on a lot of landscapes for clients at this time of year and um, now doing it uh, a bit virtually because we're in the midst of uh, COVID-19. But landscapes continue, spring continues, and uh, pollinators continue, so we got to help them. Oh, yes. And groceries continue to grow if you let them. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's, let's just jump in. I have a copy of your book here. They're always uh, so gracious to send me one. This is a stunning book. First of all, I know you're really proud of the cover. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, that, that is one of my own shots when actually I wow. could uh, get the camera in focus. I have a lot of pictures of pollinators out of focus, but that was a particularly good one. And that is one of our native bees that is nectaring on a goldenrod, solidago species, arguably some of our most important late-blooming plants, at least here in the northeast. And there are many solidago species throughout the country, but this is, um, this is one of those wonderful plants. Wow. Well, it is a stunning picture. For sure, go to... Amazon and look at this cover of this book. You'll, you'll want to buy the book just because of the cover. <laughs> so pollinator decline, you know, we don't really think about that and what it means. How bad is it and how does it affect us? Well, you know, we, we kind of took this for granted for a while until honeybees, which are 
essentially European honeybees started to really suffer major declines some years ago, and there was a lot of research dedicated to that, and it's still ongoing. Colony you know, um, collapse, this kind of thing, um, varroa mites um, have all been in the news. But what most Americans don't realize is honeybees actually aren't native to uh, North America. They're native to Europe. And it's, uh, some, some folks think that they may have actually originated in Africa and migrated over to Europe. And then they were brought here in the, to the uh, United States in 1622 by colonists. So they're important creatures, but we've got so many native bees, approximately 4,000 species of native bees, both named and unnamed, wow. in North America. Yeah, and we've just started in the last few years really paying attention to the population declines of those native bees. And, of course, bees are not the only pollinators that we have in our landscapes. There are many other creatures. We have pollinating flies. There's some pollinating beetles. We have hummingbirds, obviously. We have moths and butterflies. So many, even bats, can be pollinators in parts of the country. And there hasn't been a ton of research on the decline of many of those species. Wow. And so there's crawling insects also that pollinate, right? Yeah. Well, so uh, beetles would be um, the creatures that we tend to, to think of. Some of them fly, some of them crawl. But pollination is conducted by many more creatures than just bees. Bees are arguably the most important, uh, especially when it comes to food crops. Mm-hmm. But to a plant that requires an, you know, a different type of pollinator, that pollinator is critical. <laughs> so if you're, uh, if you're an agave plant or you're a sororo cactus, you need your bats pollinating you. Right. Well, and there's some plants, like you just mentioned, that only have certain pollinators pollinate them, right? Exactly. And sometimes we don't even know exactly what a pollinator might be for a given plant because the research isn't always there. So that's kind of strange, isn't it? But there you have it. Yeah. And how does this whole notion of pollinators affect us? Well, uh, as folks have probably heard, because Whole Foods has promoted this, about a third of of, uh, the food that we eat, about one out of three bites, is uh, pollinated uh, by an animal pollinator, typically bees, as I mentioned, but not always. And what is less well-known is that the vast majority of flowering plants on Earth are pollinated by animal pollinators. So we owe them a lot. And in many cases, crops that don't require an animal pollinator Mm -hmm. may actually benefit from animal pollination in in terms of increased yield and uh, quality of uh, that particular crop. So uh, tomatoes come to mind, uh, for example. Oh, yeah. Well, and when you say animals, you mean bugs and bees and bats? And... All, these, all these things that we're mentioning, yeah, these beetles and bo- uh, moths and butterflies and bats and on and on. Yep. Wow. So how do we attract a wider variety of pollinators to our space? Well, that, that's a terrific question. Yeah, because most people see a few bees and, and they think, well, that's, that's great. But having a, an abundance of different species and uh, diversity really indicates that you've got a healthy um, ecosystem in your landscape. So one thing we can do is get to know the pollinators that should be in our landscapes. And there are a lot of resources online, including my website, but a lot of regional resources that I refer people to. Like if you don't know what the butterflies are that are regional in your area, pick up a good book or go online and do some of that research. 
see what the butterflies are that you should be seeing in your landscape and start thinking about what they need. And that's going to include things like host plants for their caterpillars, mm-hmm. because caterpillars eat something different from adults, and it's going to be plants for um, nectaring too. So the you know getting to know your regional creatures is important. Every state in the United States has uh, native bees. California has the largest variety of over a thousand different species. Here in New York, we've got about 425 or so native species wow. of bees. Yeah, and they really vary significantly in terms of body shape and size and coloration, the length of their tongues, which helps determine what flowers they can access, etc. So we start to get a bit of a handle on what should be here, then we have a better idea of you know, what we can do to help them. And that includes not only providing flowers, it, it involves providing habitat as well sheltering places, overwintering sites, and uh, places to nest and raise young. And that's going to vary by by species. Well, and we have to be careful because a lot of these start out as caterpillars, and these caterpillars might be eating our gardens. So we have to kind of balance that, don't we? Yeah, well, you know, we've been trained, uh, most of us, from a young age, that if you see any chewing in the garden, that's a bad thing. Yes. So I'm suggesting that we take a different approach, that we understand what is behind that chewing, and sometimes it's, it's a reason to rejoice. <laughs> right. So if you, uh, you know, if you see a caterpillar chewing on a leaf of uh, milkweed, which many of us have experienced, yep. probably going to be a monarch caterpillar, right. probably going to need to eat that leaf in order to become an adult monarch. If we see some kind of circular holes that are chewed on our oak leaves, sometimes on our roses, and we think, oh, what is that? Well, it just might be a leaf cutter bee that's taking the amount of plant leaf material that she needs to line her nest so she can raise her young. So really um, taking a more thoughtful approach to what we perceive as damage and maybe reassessing that's a good idea. Yeah, you know, I get that question a lot. People say, something's chewing on my plant. How do I kill it? Mm -hmm. It's like those two go together. You know, something's growing in my garden I don't want. How do I kill it? Something's chewing on my plant. How do I kill it? And we we really have to stand back and pay attention to make sure that we know what we're dealing with first. Right, exactly, and and whether it's something that you need to deal with at all. So tolerating some damage in our landscapes is a really important uh, part of being a better ecological steward in your own yard, and that uh, that means that we can't have everything perfect all the time, and we tolerate some damage, and we think about not spraying, but we think about um, using nature's pest control to keep pests in check. Those are the beneficial insects, like most people know ladybugs, for example, Mm -hmm. that may help keep uh, pests in check. So the predators that we can attract, and I do that with uh, myself and with clients, we do that by using native plants with small blooms that have a lot of pollen that feed those creatures the protein that they need, like you know, lady beetles, for example, are a classic example. So we can plant to attract and keep pest populations in check instead of trying to eradicate everything that uh, might be a, a problem. Well, and it's really about creating a balance in your space. Make sure you create exactly. healthy soil, don't use pesticides. You know, mm-hmm. it, it really is that simple, is it not? Absolutely. It's working with nature. Yep. Yeah. So we'll get to the different things we can do to help the pollinators, but let's start with the threats. What are the threats to our pollinators? 
Arguably, development is one of the major ones, the elimination of habitat that they need, and the lack of connectivity is really quite profound. But we, um, we do things um, in America that are you know, counter to good ecological practices, like we have these huge green lawns, I call them, uh, the you know, the pollinator deserts, uh, you know, green deserts. Yeah. And we um, often manage those lawns, you know, with uh, synthetic chemicals that uh, are harmful in many cases to the creatures that we're trying to support. So that's, um, that's pretty enormous. Uh, pesticide use, big lawns, lack of native plants, development, all these things are problematic. And then, of course, the lack of floral resources, the lack of the plants that uh, creatures need, and that also host plants, as I mentioned, with, with regard to butterflies and moths. So those are all some of the, the threats to pollinators that keep their numbers from increasing and keep them from thriving. Well, one of the things I've noticed, I've been here at the urban farm for 30 years now. I've been organically gardening, farming here for 30 years. And... Mm-hmm especially the last few years, it's the pollinators have just exploded. It's been really cool. Yeah, when you when you do things with an eye toward nature, it is amazing how nature rewards you with lots of activity in your landscape. Um, nothing makes me happier than getting photos from clients when they're taking pictures of, look at this butterfly that shows up, right. that bee, and they really get that connection between the plants and the wildlife. It's really great. Yeah. And what are some of the key principles to helping pollinators? Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pick on the green desert again, uh-huh. <laughs> the big big lawn. So my advice is to keep the lawn that you really use that you really need. If you've got kids, pets, whatever playing on it, keep what you really use and manage it organically. So that's number one. And then the, give up the rest to native plants. Plants that have evolved in your area with your wildlife species, including pollinators, that support them. So by making that simple transition, we really can have an enormous impact. And then giving up the pesticides. You know, I'm, I'm in a landscape now, my own landscape for 26 years. I have never used a pesticide, period. Right. Not necessary. Yeah. And most people don't aren't comfortable with that. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's going to be really important. And then we can start small. We don't have to convert our entire green desert, our lawn, to a pollinator habitat from the get-go. We can start small with a pollinator island, or we can increase our foundation planting size and depth or at the edge of our landscapes. Start with something that's doable and achievable, and you know, then you'll be inspired to do even more of it. But there's certain things that we can think about that are really required for pollinators. And one is providing them with a place to live. And we think about the flowers, but we don't always think about habitat. So, for example, in the case of bees, most of our native bees are ground nesters. And they need to oh, nest yes. in, yeah, in soil that is workable. That means not too, not too much clay, not too sandy, can't, you know, if they're going to make these holes that can't collapse on them or it can't be so difficult to get into, that they won't, won't have proper habitat. So workable soil that's bare in a sunny spot, that's ideal. So if you happen to see bees nesting already in your landscape, encourage that area and keep that as the preferred area that you don't walk on, you don't mow, you don't plant in, etc. 
doesn't have to be in front of your front door. It can be somewhere, you know, <laughs> the side of your landscape, but really make sure that you provide those 70% of bee species that are native to North America with the ground nesting that they require. And then the other 30% of our native bees, they're cavity nesters, and they may go to things like a pithy plant stems or hollow plant stems. We think of things like raspberries, for example, broken off um, uh, stems as being just ideal habitat for them. And there are some that will go to old beetle tunnels. So leaving a dead tree standing, if you've got enough room in your landscape to do that, or cut it back to a manageable height. And the beetle burrows that the beetles then uh, finish using are ideal for some of our cavity nesting bees to use as habitat. And mouse holes are also kind of interesting. For example, bumblebees really like to use abandoned mouse holes as, as habitat. So I'm often asked uh, here in the Northeast, you know, how do uh, how do I get rid of ticks in my landscape? And there are a lot of practitioners that are promoting the use of pemrethrin down old you know mouse holes because the first vectors for Lyme disease are actually white-footed mice, not deer. Right. So they're trying to you know trying to kill the um, ticks that way. But think about that if you're doing that you know, you've caused harm to the bumblebees that might be using that old abandoned mouse hole. So thinking like the creatures that we're trying to support is is really a helpful step. Big time. And then with regard to floral resources, planting a succession of bloom throughout the entire growing season. So it's going to be different depending on where you are in the United States. You know, some uh, places have year-round growing season. Here in New York, we're early spring to late fall. Mm-hmm. But that succession of bloom with different flowers, shapes, sizes, and colors to attract different types of pollinators is really, really great. That's going to help attract more individual pollinators and more types of species. Some things that I mentioned in the book that people might not know about Skip the double-flowered plants that sometimes can seem so compelling when you go to a garden center and go, wow, look at that plant. And the reason is that these um, these hybridized plants that have been essentially created right. to be filled with more petals mm. often have little or no pollen or nectar. And even if they do have some, it's inaccessible to pollinators. So if we stick with the natural forms of plants, even if we're getting a selection, a cultivar, if we stick with plants that look like they're supposed to, not some sort of freak show that (laughs) has been, you know, man hybridized, we're going to be in better shape. We're going to be in better shape. Wow, cool. So those are are a few of the tips. Right. So I'm thumbing through your book as we're going along, and on page 13 of your book, there's a avoid this, do this. So there's a a definitive list on page 13. On page 15, and this Mm -hmm. is what I was getting to a little while ago, I have heard before that ants are pollinators, and that's on your list. Sure. And and so just keep in mind that not every species within a group of pollinators is going to you know, be a pollinating insect, like like not all beetles are pollinators, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, ants can move things around, right? And so while they're going for um, sweet stuff, the nectar, they might actually be, you know, incidental or accidental pollinators. And they may be very important for certain plants. Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of things. We, they're even pollinating lizards in parts of the world. Oh, interesting. When I see also on your list of types of pollinators, mosquitoes are pollinators. Yeah. 
again, kind of limited, but mm-hmm. um, yes, there are some. Uh, they seem to be mostly found on, on native orchids. Yeah, wow. One of the things that I've often wondered about is where do these bugs, let's just say bugs, overwinter at? Most of the pollinators will not overwinter as adults, right? So a lot will die. And uh, it's kind of a sad time of year here uh, in New York in the fall when you see a lot of the, you know, the, the male bumblebees dying, but that's that's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. So in that case, a queen who is likely already mated, she may be overwintering somewhere that's safe. It, again, might be in an old mouse hole or maybe the base of a clumping native grass. Depends on what she can find. If you're lucky, maybe a shrub pile is a, is a good place oh, for yeah. some of these bees. It's protected from a lot of the rain. But they kind of pick where they want to go, and they'll overwinter in that case. But it, it depends on, on the particular species. I mean, some, some critters will migrate to a warmer climate. Hummingbirds, uh, for example, in our area, you know, they're going to be leaving in the fall. And obviously, monarch butterflies are a classic example of that. They're the longest migrators of all of our butterflies. But there are some other species of butterflies that migrate uh, shorter distances. So it depends on the species. But if we leave our perennial standing through winter and uh, provide some habitat in that way and also some seed resources for creatures like uh, birds, we can do quite a bit to encourage the next generation in the following growing season. So that's a practice that I really um, advocate to clients is leave your perennial standing through winter. Cut back in early spring, Mm. but don't cut everything back at the same time. As you know, with with respect to insects, insect activity starts up pretty much in the uh, temperatures in the 50s. But you know, we're we're getting warm and cold spells right now in New York. It's pretty darn chilly where I am, and yet it's right now it's toward the end of April. So if we stagger our cutting back in the garden and don't do it all in one day, do it over a period of weeks, we're going to increase the the likelihood that pollinators are going to be able to survive. And we really want to work toward that, building out Mm -hmm. as many different places for them to hide as we can. Absolutely. Nice. And so you've mentioned bees several times. And what I want to do is I kind of want to distinguish what a bee looks like, because when people think bees, they're thinking bumblebee. But there's so many different kinds, right? Yeah, you know, of those 4,000 species, there's some things that don't look a thing like bees, you know, to an average person. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, there are some flies that look like bees. So we need to get our heads wrapped around the idea that not everything looks exactly like a honeybee or, say, a bumblebee. There are many of these different species. Uh, coloration can be very different, the size and, and the shape, the body strength can be very different. Some native bee species, uh, they only fly maybe 100 feet in their lifetime, you know, from where their wow. their nest is. But a bumblebee could go, easily go a mile if it had to. Honeybees much further than that. So we don't want them to have to go that far to find the resources that they need. That's part of this approach, you know, is to do as much as you can in your landscape to provide pollinators with everything that they need within a lifetime, of of course, except for migrators. Right. We've done everything we can do. We've changed our lawn desert into something that's much more habitable. We've added flowers. You know, we've done all of that. 
Is there a point at which we should bring in pollinators? Because I know there are companies out there that we can buy them from. A lot of folks have this idea that the way to help pollinators is to import them. And I disagree with that, actually. And I, I feel the same way about beneficial insects. You know, if you're importing uh, ladybugs, for example, from another area, you might unwittingly be bringing in a disease or a pest on those ladybugs that hadn't existed in your area. Mm-hmm. So I'm a firm believer in planting to attract. You know, if you plant it, they will come. They really do. Yes, they do. <laughs> you know, if you're uh, if you're a, a beekeeper or a wannabe beekeeper for honeybees, it's kind of a different situation. You know, you will have to uh, bring them in. But think twice about that. That is, uh, that's a way to get honey. That's a way to pollinate certain, you know, certain plants, certainly a lot of crops. But there's an inherent competition for resources between honeybees and our native bees. Now, a honeybee colony, you know, a thriving honeybee colony might have 50,000 individuals in one colony. Very much different than our native bees, the vast majority of which are solitary. You know, bumblebees are the most social of our native bees, and they're in very small groups of maybe 50 to a few hundred at most. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind, you know, if you if you want to keep honeybees, you're going to have to ramp up the floral resources and the habitat for native bees because there is there is some competition there. And the mason bees have gotten very popular. Mm-hmm. They're really excellent pollinators of orchard fruits, for example. Uh, it, it said that just you know a very very small grouping of mason bees can pollinate an acre apple orchard, you know, uh, more successfully than a, an entire colony of fifty thousand honeybees. So, wow. they're yeah, they're really really good pollinators of of things like you know almonds and apples and what and whatnot. But you know, again, kind of think about the impact that you may have bringing in imported creatures into your your landscape, it's better to support the ones that are struggling to be there and that would reproduce probably more actively if they were, you know, happier and had the resources that they need and they didn't have to travel so far to find what they need. Right. Beautiful. And what can our listeners do to have a greater reach beyond their own landscapes? Like we want to, you know, step out and do more out there. What can we do? Connectivity is, is a big issue. This has become a big topic um, now, and, and folks that have been managing wildlife in urban and suburban communities kind of get this, even in rural areas. Like I remember going out to Montana and seeing, for the first time in person, a wildlife ramp across a highway that enabled big fauna to actually get safely over the highway instead of getting hit by cars. Right. So we can think about doing something like that on a, on a different scale for flying pollinators and connecting habitats one to the other. Now, there's a, there's a movement in the Northeast called the Pollinator Pathway Movement where municipalities, community-based organizations are getting together and creating pathways in, in given towns and, and municipalities, and individuals can get on those maps. So increasing that connectivity is really, really important. And you can start small by just approaching your neighbors and saying, look what I'm doing over here in, in my garden, and I'd be happy to help you do something similar in yours. Get people excited about this. Get your um, pollinator habitat sign up at the end of your driveway or in a place in your landscape where other people can see it so they get motivated, encouraged, and inspired to do the same thing. Wow. Amen to that. 
So I have your book here in my hand. It is a stunning book. I mentioned that earlier. It's got to be exciting to have you know, a concept that you created, have it be birthed and have something you can hold in your hand. Tell me about that and tell me about your book. Years ago, I was thinking about the plight of pollinators and how challenged they were and, you know, how um, those folks didn't really understand how bad it was. And I thought about the victory gardens of World War One and World War Two, and how those marketing messages that were government-based, you know, start a victory garden for food defense. Well, those messages enabled uh, average Americans to participate in the war effort, who, you know, those people who couldn't necessarily fight and had to stay at home, but they could do something to help. So about 20 million American households created victory gardens in World War II, and it was a really successful movement. So I uh, applied this uh, concept uh, to pollinators, and uh, here we are. <laughs> Pollinator Victory Garden. Nice. The Pollinator Victory Garden win the war on pollinator decline and ecological or with ecological gardening uh, by Kim Ironman. And where can people find the book? Pretty much anywhere. You can go to Amazon, your independent bookseller, go online to my website at ecobeneficial.com. Um, essentially, wherever you're buying your books, you can find it there. Perfect. So I want to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I'd like to ask you about a vivid childhood memory associated with food. Well, as a child, I grew up in Maryland, and usually once or twice a summer, my mother would pack me and my brother in the car, and we would drive an hour or two to Pennsylvania, to York, Pennsylvania. And there were orchards peach orchards in mm. York, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I was, I was used to getting the insipid fruit from the local grocery store, <laughs> by and large, you know, the tasteless fruit. But when we, when we got up to York, we got out of the car and there'd be these just enormous, beautiful, juicy peaches, ones that had fuzz on them. I, we never got peaches with fuzz on them from the grocery store. Ones that had such delicious taste and a juicy and just wonderful. So I, I love that experience, and every time I eat a peach, I think about that. Right. When I tell people, once you grow your own food, especially the soft flesh fruit like peaches and apricots and plums, and pick it fresh off of the tree, you can't ever go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And a new piece of advice for our listeners? Well, I would say that my one word of encouragement would be that every landscape really does matter. No matter how inexperienced you are, if you are inexperienced, or no, how, no matter how small your landscape is or how little time you have, you can make a difference. And that's a really powerful concept. And it often doesn't ring true for people until they do it. Mm -hmm. So start. Start now. Do a little research. My book has a lot of information, including some plant lists, but I have regional plant lists on my website as a complement to the book. But don't even stop there. Because I'm a big proponent of native plants that have evolved in our regional ecosystems, really encourage listeners to join their local native plant society and benefit from the wonderful information that's available there so you can you know, create your own plant palette that's appropriate for your region and for your particular landscape. But start with something that's um, a plant that you've always wanted to try, that's a good pollinator plant. And once you see the action, you're going to want to do more. 
Cool. And, you know, it, it occurs to me that I, I have a one more question for you, and that's the importance of buying organically grown plant starts for your garden. Can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, so important. I've written about this, why locally grown, organically grown plants matter. So, you know, most of us are willing to pay a premium if we go to a farmer's market. We're going to buy an organically grown heirloom vegetable. But we don't always think in those terms when we go to buy plants. So I really encourage folks to to frequent the nurseries, the mom-and-pop nurseries, that are growing organically, pesticide-free, in real soil, and even better, if they're wild collecting seed to increase genetic diversity in our landscapes, that's really worth paying extra for. So there are not a lot around, but this year they're struggling, especially because of this you know, dreadful COVID-19. Mm-hmm. It's really taking an impact you know, on our businesses. But make a point to shop locally with these native plant nurseries that are really trying to get it right and to help the environment. Just, you know, buying plants at big box stores is not, that's not a place I want to be buying my plants. Amen to that. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Kim. Well, thank you so much for having me again. Oh my gosh, you bet. And how can our listeners find you and get a hold of your book? Sure. So visit my website, ecobeneficial.com. I have lots of tips, videos, even a podcast uh, there. And of course, I've got a tab for the Pollinator Victory Garden with lots of additional resources. And you can buy the book through the website, um, again, at any uh, vendor that you like, or you can go online or in person to your favorite bookstore. Perfect. Yeah. Support your local businesses, especially right now. Mm-hmm. Once again, thank you. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash echo beneficial. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.